Okay, so do you guys remember that you were appointed by the elders, my voice coaches? Do you remember this from last time? What's the universal sign for that I'm not completing words and talking too fast? This is, right? Just go ahead and do it whenever I'm doing that. And um, I, uh, I want to thank the elders for preaching for me the first week I was gone. I actually heard that went pretty well. Um, and I heard a lot of people say that that was great and that I could go on vacation more. Um, <laughs> so that was encouraging. Um, so th- I want to thank Lloyd and, and the elders that did that. I thought it was good. And we're going to do that again in the fall. We're going to go back to Proverbs for another week and, and hear from some elders again. Um, if you have a Bible, um, turn it to Leviticus 1, verse 1. If you don't, there's one, should be one on the pew rack in front of you, and I'm going to start reading on page 154. I'm going to read this passage about a third of the way through my sermon, um, so about 30 minutes in. Just kidding. Um, so, yeah. I think one of the things that we need to recognize when we look at the book of Leviticus— so we're doing this series, we're looking at the gospel through the Bible— and um, we're in the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus is where God gives the, the people of Israel the, the definitions for the sacrifices for the sacrificial system. And it's, you know, here's how you kill the animals, and here's where you burn it, and here's where you dump their blood, and so on. And so if you're not a Christian, you kind of ended up in church somehow today, um, you might be thinking, oh my gosh, seriously, how long is this going to talk for some sacrificial system that's more than 3,000 years old that allegedly some God gave to some nomadic people or something? Um, and, and that's a good question. Hopefully that'll be answered at the end of this. Um, but one of the things that those people who are Christians and are in church and talking about blood in, in the Bible isn't weird, one of the things that we need to recognize in the culture in which we live is that it's really weird. Um, some of you grew up singing this song um, by Elisha Hoffman from 1878, Are You Washed in the Blood? Brother, are you washed in the blood? I mean, how do you think that would go if you went down to like— campus or the capital during the farmer's market and be like, go, just go around. Brother, you washed in the blood? Are you washed in the blood? I mean, you might end up in handcuffs. I don't really know what they would do with you. Because um, it wouldn't be that weird at the farmer's market, probably. But, um, <laughs> but you know, here's, if you haven't ever saying this, you know, have you, been, have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace? Are, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are you white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And you could just imagine that if you were a non-Christian going to a church, listening to a couple hundred people sing that song with full vigor, you, you, might, you might wonder what you walked into. Right? That's partly because the whole concept of blood— being on somebody generally does not have the connotation to, in our culture of cleansing, but the, co- the context of stain, right? That if you do something wrong, you have blood on your hands, right? And that's idea of—that's that's carried guilt. It's guilt you can't get off. Part of the relationship to sort of the classic Western civilization um, literary example of this is in Shakespeare, right, in Macbeth, where they kill— uh, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth kill King Duncan, and long after they've gotten rid of his body and cleaned themselves off, sh- she's going crazy, right? And most people can quote the first line, out, damn, spot, out, right? You could say damn in church when you quote Shakespeare, which is wonderful. Um, um, but this is the rest of the context. Um, why need we fear who knows it when none can call our power to account? Meaning, there are no witnesses. There's nobody that knows who do- who dis- who's done this. So why is this— blood still on my hands. He says, you'd have thought the—who would have thought the old man had so much blood in him? Here's the smell of blood still, meaning on her hands. And all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, oh, oh. Right? And that concept is actually in the Bible, too. In the book of Joshua— um, it's just a different metaphor statement. It's the, your blood will be on your own head, meaning that if you do something evil, you'll be called to account. You'll be killed for it, and your blood is on your own head, meaning you're responsible for your own death, right? So there is a blood concept in the Bible of culpability, right? But one of the thing, the reasons why Leviticus is so important is to understand the use of the concept of blood in the Old Testament. The, the, the reason why blood is referenced so frequently is because God says explicitly in the book of Leviticus that he counts blood as life. That's really important to recognize. That blood, God has chosen and selected blood as the physiological metaphor for life. Because otherwise, what counts for life? What's life, Right? Time. Well, time's not really life, or is it money? Is it what? I mean, what? What is it? Right? And so, what God does in Leviticus, He says, "Here's what's going to count for life: blood is." 
And so, for example, in Leviticus 17, because in Leviticus, God commands two things about blood. One, it will be shed for atoning sacrifices. And two, nobody drinks it. Because if blood counts for life, think about how this would work. If you believe that, if blood counts for life, what would you do to enrich yourself? You'd drink it, right? You took that metaphor a little too far. And there were peoples in the ancient world that that was a very big part of what they did. In fact, even Native Americans would ingest the blood of what, whatever they killed in a sense of— it, it was a spiritual transaction for them, right? But and God actually said that he didn't want that to be the case because it fouled the metaphor. He was trying to clarify for human beings that we were not to take the blood of others to give ourselves life, but we were to recognize the cost of the blood of another as a sacrifice for our guilt and sin. Right? Here's the passage from Leviticus 17. For the life of a creature is in its blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the, say to the Israelites, meaning Moses, tell them this, none of you may eat blood, nor may any alien living among you eat blood. Any Israelite or any alien living among you who hunts an animal or bird that may be eaten must drain all the blood and cover it with earth, because the life of every creature is in its blood. That is why I have said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature, because the life of every creature is in its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. You see how serious? He's pretty serious about that. You ate blood from an animal intentionally, you couldn't be an Israelite anymore. Because he said, because the blood counts for life. And this life exchange thing is, is central to everything God was doing among his people in relationship to how they related to him and who they were and what they were. And he said, the blood counts as life and it's for atonement. It's not for ingestion. Because of its theological significance in the relationship to God. The other thing that's important to recognize is that without Leviticus, it's really hard to make sense of who Jesus is. I mean, what, what does the life and death of Jesus actually mean? Most of the Gospels are about Jesus' death. I mean, think about this. How long was his ministry? This is participatory. Three years, about, right? He was alive for 33 years or so, but his ministry was three years. And how long did it take for him to die? The Passion, we call it the Passion. Week, right? So about a, about a, about a week is the whole bit, right? The Last Supper. But the dying part only took about, you know, six to 12 hours in that neighborhood, depending on what you count, Right? So why is half of John's gospel about Jesus' death? Why do some theologians refer to Mark's gospel as a passion narrative with an introduction? You see, there are a lot of people that are confused, and I think the meaning of Jesus was his teaching, that he was a good moral teacher, something like that. But when Jesus showed up to start his public ministry, he walked up to a guy named John the Baptist, who God said there's nobody greater than him alive. And what John said about Jesus was, he said, Look, or behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Now, I don't know if you know anything about lambs, but usually it's other things carrying them off, not them carrying something off, right? How does the Lamb take away the sins of the world? And it's because of the sacrificial system. It's because of Leviticus. None of this, Jesus doesn't make any sense. And the blood talk in the Bible doesn't make any sense. And what I'm going to—what I want to argue with you is, is that— and you and I don't make any sense without the concept of atonement. And it's very hard to make sense of an, a lot of New Testament passages about Jesus. For example, in 1 Peter 18 and 19, it says—this is the line right before that. Um, it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty light, way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with what? Well, how are we redeemed? But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, right? Or there's this really, this, there's this inter- really interesting passage in, in Revelation 5, and in some ways it looks like it's a silly passage unless you understand Leviticus. Because here's what it says. One of the elders said to me, so, so here's John. He's caught up in this revelation. There's all these elders worshiping God around the throne. And one of the elders goes to John, who's in this vision. He goes, he says, he says, look, right? He says, don't weep, because what happened is there was this scroll, and nobody had the authority to open it. Only the king of glory could open it. And so nobody could open it. And John's crying, because he's like, dang, I'm, I'm up in this vision, and I don't get to see what's on this scroll. And so he's weeping, and one of the others goes, don't, don't weep, don't, don't weep. He says, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you remember that from the Genesis sermons, if you've been here, right? 
the line of Judah, the scepter would not leave his line. The eternal king would come from the line of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, meaning the ultimate king of David's line that would be king forever, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And you're like, oh my gosh. And so John's like, I'm about to see this guy. Where is he? Let's, let's see what he looks like. He's going to look awesome, right? And guess what he looks like? And then I saw a lamb looking like it'd been killed. Can you, you know what I'm saying? The elder goes, hey man, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the great king of everything, the root of the great king David, the one who is king and victor forever, he's going to open it. Here he comes. And John's like, oh yeah. I mean, and here comes, and here, here he is. It's a lamb that looks like it's been killed. Now that doesn't make any sense at all unless you understand Leviticus. Chapters 1 to 7. But I think there's another thing that's really important to recognize. And so, and so if, we, if we realize that, if we realize the importance of understanding Leviticus to understand blood language in Jesus, one of the things we need to recognize is what the gospel sounds like to people when we just say this stuff without giving it any context. Because we'll say something that's perfectly biblical and actually true, like, Jesus is the Lamb of God and you need to be cleansed by his blood. Brother, have you been cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Right? And what they hear is something like, God has a sheep, and you need to be drenched in his blood for some reason. Which doesn't sound particularly—I mean, Ron Weasley doesn't get it. (laughs) But yet, again and again in these passages, we're pointed to this thing that if we're made right with God, we're made right not even just by believing in Jesus, but specifically, not by the, the good moral teaching of Jesus, but specifically the blood of Christ. Now think about how wise that is of God. He knows what kind of self-justifiers we are. He knows that we, we're going to want to make Jesus whatever we want him to be so that we can live however we want to. So the likelihood that human beings would turn Jesus into a great moral teacher whose morals we don't like, who we say that we like, but we don't actually do any of them, he, God knew from eternity past that that would be our temptation. And so he got a lot more specific than just, you need to believe and follow Jesus. You need to be careful when you talk with your friends and people about Jesus that you don't just be like, well, I'm just a follower of Jesus. Well, that's great, and you may be a follower of Jesus, but that is not enough. The New Testament authors continually didn't say, we're followers of Jesus. They said specifically, we are set right with God by the blood of Jesus. Now, in one sense, that's really wacky sounding and weird to modern ears, but it is specific. It is clear that it is not the teaching of Jesus. It is the death of Jesus. It is the life is in the blood, and the life of Jesus sets us right with God by exchanging our death for his life, our sin for his righteousness, our curse for his blessing. Our boundness for his freedom, our guilt for his innocence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, where's the most holy place? The place where God is in the temple, right? So we have confidence, we're confident so we can walk right into the presence of God. How? By, prepositions are so important when we interpret the Bible, aren't they? By the blood of Jesus, right? Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away—see, the metaphor now is alienation, belonging, right? You who were once far away have been brought near through what? Not the teaching of Jesus, and not through being a good person. Through the blood of Christ, the Messiah Jesus, right? In 9.22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood— the giving of life for life. There's no forgiveness. Now, one of the things that's also important for us to recognize, and the reason why we don't make sense without the concept of atonement, is that atonement is a universal concept. Um, here, here are a couple proofs of this. Um, have you ever had this conversation? You're, you're talking with somebody, and they're angry with you, and you say something like, Don't you realize I already feel awful about that? I've felt awful about that for weeks or months or years, insert whatever you want, and I can't believe you keep throwing it up in my face and torturing me with it. Right? Now, what does that conversation presume? Right? It presumes two things. One, the other person is trying to gouge atonement out of the person who's upset. And the other person believes they've suffered sufficient atonement for whatever they did. 
And so they're having an argument about atonement. Something has been done that needs to be made up for. That's what atonement is. Something bad has been done, and something else has to happen so that it can be made up for. And the way most people do it in normal relationships is they feel bad about it. Like, that makes up for it somehow. If I feel bad about it, that'll make up for it. I won't have to apologize or repent, or I'll just feel bad about it. And then how dare anybody tell me I'm wrong, right? That's, that is just self-atonement. We're just saying, the price for my sin is a certain amount and intensity of me feeling bad. Once I've accomplished that, I'll feel better, and my whatever slight indiscretion will be atoned for, right? Or you see this in sports, right? Like, I don't know if you've watched the NBA Finals, but Tim Duncan, who was carrying his team and is a fabulous basketball player, late in the second half, had this easy layup. He had this—he had the ball— it's wide open. Somebody had overplayed him. He had this wide open layup. It was going to tie the game, totally change the dynamic, put the Spurs in the driver's seat to win, and he just missed. This guy shot—I mean, he's made thousands of layups in professional basketball in his career. One of the best pro basketball players ever. Now, how do you think he feels? You know, you know, most sport—to be any kind of competitor, you know what you have to think? You have to think, I'm going to get him next time. Right? Because if you get too mopey, you're never going to be a good competitor. You got to hate you lost. You got to go out and whoop their butt the next time. And what is the whooping their butt? See, what happens when somebody loses the championship and the next year we win it? What do we call that? They got redemption, right? They got What did you say? I forgot. I didn't hear you. Atonement? Did you say atonement? You're paying attention. No. No, redemption, right? You get redemption. But what gets you redemption? You see, it's the vocabulary. When you win the championship, having won it, you are redeemed. That is, your standing is back to what it should be, right? You've redeemed yourself. But what was the redeeming? It was the winning of the championship. Well, what is that? It's atonement. It changes the, the bad thing that happened that something had to be done about to put you in the standing that you need. You see, when you put, just simply put it in non-religious terms, what atonement is, is that something must be done to make up for what's already happened. That's what atonement is. Something must be done to make up for what's already happened. And once you put it in those terms, I think if you're honest with yourself, you realize this is ubiquitous humanity. Everybody feels this way. Everybody is dealing with something they wish they didn't do or that didn't happen or that needs to be made up for. We're constantly dealing with those sorts of things. So let's go through three things relatively quickly. The first is, so the three things are one, that God provides atonement through these sacrifices. I need to say something about Leviticus 1 through 7, that everyone seeks atonement and that Jesus is the atonement. Okay, so the first is that God provides atonement. Um, Now, if you read all of Leviticus 1 to 6, which is all of 10 pages, and I know there's no way you can do that, you know, read 10 pages. But I'd encourage you to do that, okay? It's not very long. You don't have to read the red and green mold sections in chapter 18. Read the first seven chapters. It'll be very enriching for you. There's five sacrifices, okay? The first is the burnt offering, right? The second is the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, and the, um, the guilt offering or the reparation offering. Now, I'll go re- real quick what they are. The burnt offering is a general atonement, it's every day. The priest would offer it every day. And so you, there, was, there was a bull, and they would sacrifice it. So I mean, I'll take you through real quick. So you got the bull, right? So you're doing the burnt offering. You've got a bull, and it's, it's got to be a good one. The first is it can't be blemished. It has to be a good one. It has to be your best, right? Did you hear the verse before I read about Jesus, who is the blood of Jesus without stain or wrinkle, or the spotless Lamb of God, he's called in the Bible. That, so God goes back in time, he goes, whatever you offer, it's got to be perfect, because it's pointing forward to kind of a perfect Savior, right? So it's got to be a good one. You've got to bring it, and you've got to present it. This is my offering, right? And the priest has to look at it and go, okay. Then, you've got to put your hands on it. You've got to look the, you got to look the dumb thing in the face, because you're going to kill it. And it says in the the same verse that they put their hands on it, that through the atoning sacrifice, they'll be forgiven. Why? Because that's when the transfer happens. My life for your life. What was the guilt that was required of my sins, I'm transferring to a substitute. Then you have to kill it, not the priest. You have to take some 
bronze knife, and you have to cut his throat, and then you have to skin it, and you have to gut it, and you have to cut it up. The priest just has to take some of the blood, sprinkle it where it goes. It says, it says you have to cut up the animal while he arranges the pieces of wood. Right? And then the blood has to be offered to God. It's sprinkled around his altar in front of the tent of meeting where God is present because the offering is presented not to anybody but God. Because whoever we sin against, we're sinning in God's world against the reality he created. And every sin is first and foremost before God. So the the offering has to be made to God. And then lastly, in every passage it says, when this is done, the sin will be atoned for. That is, there is assurance. There's a declaration of forgiveness. So as I read this passage, I want you to listen for those five things. And here's why. Because those are the five things repeated again and again and again in the New Testament, demonstrating that Jesus' death is patterned after this. That what Jesus means is what this means. Does that make sense? Okay. Leviticus 1, I'm going to read 1, 2, I think 9. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal either from the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting, right, the place where God dwells, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord, right? It's being presented to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for me. See how those are connected to each other? The laying on the hand and the acceptance of atonement. They're put right together. Because you see, it could set it at the end, right? You could have the whole burnt offering, and at the end it says, if you do all this, it'll be accepted. It doesn't. It specifically says, when you put the hand on the animal— then it will be accepted as an atonement because the the substitution is key. He, meaning the person who laid his hand on it, the person bringing the offering, he is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to skin the burnt offering and cut it to pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange the wood. I mean, which job do you want, right? You get to skin it and cut it up. He gets to put wood on the fire, right? Then Aaron's son, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood— that is on the altar. He is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Do you see how all those five things were in there? Now, one of the reasons why, why this is critical is this could not be left undone. Do you see how early this is in God's history with people? It's the third book of the Bible, but it's very early. As soon as he So he creates human beings. Things fall apart. You've got this whole horrible time where there isn't a people of God. He chooses Abraham. Then when they come out of Egypt, they become the people of God. Immediately, he creates a sacrificial system. Why? Well, I mean, on some level I'm speculating, but on some level I'm not. Because atonement is maybe one of the most fundamental needs of humanity. He couldn't wait. You couldn't wait for an atonement system till later on with the people of God. It was necessary immediately because it was people's most necessary thing. Something had to be done about our guilt, our anxiety, our sense of doom, our fighting with one another, our brokenness with relationship to God and humanity and everything else. You can't have social beauty or true interpersonal without atonement because everybody is on edge inside. Everybody's internally problematic. And something has to happen for that to get put at peace. Or you can't really authentically fully relate to another person, a family, a people, a society, a world, a God, with your own very being. And so right away, it's bloody, seems primitive, doesn't seem fair to the lambs. But straight away, there is a system of substitutionary atonement where God can provide for people a way to be set right with himself. 
Now, one of the reasons why this has to be relevant, even though that's a 3,000-something-year-old text, is because if you understand your own humanity and the humanity of others, you'll recognize that everybody seeks atonement. This is without exception. Um, every, and the reason for the, one of the reasons for this is um, guilt and anxiety and on-edgedness in the human psychology. The reason we're defensive the reason, is because there's something amiss inside of us in our relationship to reality, all of creation, in relationship to God, in relationship to ourselves and to others. And atonement is the mechanism by which we deal with that angstness, that on-edgedness, whatever you want to call it, however it feels to you, there's something at the core that isn't quiet. And there have been a number of ways in Western culture we've tried to deal with this besides with Christianity. Um, the sort of post-enlightenment methodology of this was, um, was to attack repression. Because why are people full of anxiety, right? Why do people have problems? Well, the idea was is that because everybody else puts their expectations on people. And every human being has to make a terrible choice whether to live up to the expectations of others and not be happy and so be miserable, or to not seek happiness, live up to the expectations of others and be miserable. So you have to choose between either being guilty or miserable. And so Freud comes on the scene and he says, see, this is why everybody has a problem. Because everybody's going nuts inside because Victorianism is squishing everybody psychologically in such a way that they're going nuts. And so what we need to do is we need to break out of that. We need to become unrepressed. Now, almost everything Freud ever said is wrong, but he should get credit for starting a field, okay? Freud, Freud said some things that I really disagree that I think are ultimately have terrible implications, but he was a great thinker because he created a field virtually out of nothing, okay? Yeah, Augustine was more advanced in the fourth century, but we'll just leave that aside for now, okay? So the, the issue here, though, is so what happens? We went through a hundred years of getting unrepressed, right? But here's the thing. What are we doing now? We still unrepressing, right? I was talking with um, somebody in our church not that long ago who's a a PhD practicing psychotherapist. And she was telling me, she's like, you know, the strange thing about this is, is that what, what we're finding is psychotherapy is becoming less and less effective. The standard, old, like the old school methodology of psychotherapy is becoming less and less effective. And I was like, well, why do you think that is? I, I said, is it, is it that we've like done all the unrepressing we can do? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I think so. I think it's something like that. Because what are we still unrepressing? Right? I mean, it's one thing to say, Victorianism, there was a lot, wasn't, there was a lot of legalism in Victorianism. I mean, like, if you had to wear a collar this big, you know, and have like your, your dress all the way to the ground and you couldn't show any ankles and people complained about the voluptuousness of piano legs, I mean, that's, that's a little repressed. I mean, that's, that's legalism, right? That really is legalism. And so what needed to happen was people needed to be freed into the true freedom of the children of God, into non-legalism. But what happened was we said, well, let's just pitch the whole thing. Let's unrepress ourselves. Let's be whoever we want. Let's do whoever we want. I didn't mean it that way. Let's do whatever we want. I mean, do whoever we want is part of it, right? And let's define ourselves from ourselves, right? Freudian slip. Ooh! <laughs> the point is— if repression was our problem, would we all still have the same problem that we've always had as a human race? How much more unrepressed are we planning on getting? You see, there's a certain point when something runs its course, you've unrepressed as much as you can, and you still have the same problem, and you've got to consider the possibility that the whole enterprise is wrong. Now, more modernly, what you hear a lot of people saying now is, here's why you feel bad. Um, your primate ancestors survived because they created more effective groups. They created more effective herds. And those herds survived because, because those ancestors 
um, depended on each other su- su- sufficiently. They worked together well. And what that has created in the surviving primates that have come after, the, the bipedal hominids that are here today, is, is genetic programming for interrelationship. In a sense of needing each other, and, and, and so there's this, there's this genetic moral code kind of hardwired into you that, you that naturally elicits feelings. Feelings like you should do certain things and be certain things and blah, blah, blah. Now, there's two, two ways you can go with that. One of them is you can say, oh, that's interesting as an observation. But then what do you do with that? You see, one of the things you do is saying, well, there's nothing objectively moral about that, right? So if you want to feel good, what do you need to do? You need to recognize that's what it is. You need to recognize there's nothing philosophically true about it, and you can just put it aside. Or you can try and live up to your genetic nature in a way that'll make you feel good. But those are your options. Now, there is a third option. And the third option is that we actually do live in a moral universe, and we actually were created to be moral creatures. And there are some things, morally, spiritually, in relationship to reality, things that we can't not know. That we are hardwired to know certain things, and some of those things are moral things. And that phenomenon within, inside the human being has been referred to through the ages as conscience. There are things we can't not know. We can try to not know them, and we may be able to move them from the front of our conscious mind to our semi-conscious or subconscious mind, but we can't actually not know them. Right? And Jay Bujusevsky, who's a, a political philosopher at University of Texas, has written two books on this, but he did get it from the Bible. In Romans 2.15, where Paul is talking about the Gentiles that don't know God, he says they're actually not morally non-culpable because the way they act— the moral codes that they have, how they obey and disobey their own moral codes, demonstrates that the requirements of the law of God, God's true, what he said about the nature of moral reality is written on their hearts. What does that mean, written on their hearts? He says, their conscience bearing witness, right? So there's something that says, no, no, that's wrong, and you know it's wrong, right? And it says, their thoughts Why? Because what is your conscience? What's the phenomenology? What do you experience? Inner thoughts. That's what you experience, right? And Paul's saying your heart, the metaphor, your conscience, the actual part of your being, comes through and you have these inner thoughts. And some of them are testifying against you, saying, look, you can say all you want that that's okay, but it's not okay. Right? Um, Now, Bujashevsky puts it in this thing. There are things that we can't not know. We can want as bad as we want to not know them, but we still know them. And when we repress our conscience, and we act like we don't know them, and we do whatever we want, that creates an inner angst that we can never get rid of apart from atonement. And so we go about manufacturing atonements for ourselves that we hope will work. And so I just—I call this—I'm sure somebody else calls this—I just call this the damnation cycle. Because um, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, some of these authors in the later 20th century, got attacked by evangelicals for talking about hell like it was metaphorical. Because Lewis said one time, he said, the gates of hell are closed from the inside. Meaning, the people in hell, they want to be there. They don't want anything to do with God. They've, and the idea is that psychologically they've turned in on themselves. I mean, Martin Luther said that's what sin is. Sin is man turned in on himself, right? And is that true biblically? No, it's false. The gates of hell may be, may be mutually shut from the inside, But the Bible says that they're shut from the outside. It is a judicial act of God. Now, they might—the people in hell might go, well, that's fine, we're locking it too. (laughs) But they locked it after. But what Lewis means by hell being locked from the inside is that—and this is the answer to the question of, wait a second, are you saying that anybody can be saved so you can wait till somebody's on their deathbed and be saved and they'll go to heaven and didn't they cheat? Well, one of the answers to that is, that's not cheating. That's called grace. The other answer to that is— this is what you tell a high schooler who says, well, I don't think I want to accept Jesus now. Maybe I just all wait till I, uh, this is what you tell them. If you put off Jesus, you, you're telling your conscience you don't need God's atonement. You're already starting to lie to your conscience. And there is a damnation cycle of conscience that when you're 70, you'll be so out of taste for the truth, you won't come to Jesus. Um, in Bujicevsky's book, The Revenge of Conscience, it's, okay, so the name of the book comes from this, right? What happens? We repress our conscience, we repress our conscience, but it has, it has a way of avenging itself on us, which is actually a wonderful grace of God. If we could just repress our conscience and it would just shut up, that would actually be worse. 
But he says, here's, what, here's basically what happens. We start by rejecting the moral code that we don't want to live up to. We don't like it. Our conscience might testify against us, but we're not going to listen. We're going to do what we want. And so what needs to happen for that to happen is we have to suppress our conscience. We have to say, I'm not listening to you. You're wrong. You're just genetic pre-programming for my bipedal ancestors. I need to get away from this repression. I don't need to listen to your, somebody else's expectations. Yeah, maybe nobody in my whole life told me to do that thing, but somehow it's filtered through sociology. I read it in some article, and now I feel bad, and I'm going to get rid of it all, right? We call it whatever you want. It's the suppression of conscience. What, and once we do that, we sin, and we think we don't know it, but we really do know it. On the surface of our psychology, we fully justified ourselves that we're okay, that we did the right thing. But there's that little gnawing thing inside that you have to put out. The best way I can explain it is, it's like a couple of sticks of a fire that are burning. It's just a little fire that says, that's not right what you just did, and you know it. But you can just step it out. You can just go, nope. That's called the repression of conscience. That is one step in the cycle of psychological damnation. What that means, what that does is after we sin, we recognize we know we've sinned and we're on edge. And so what do you do with the edge? What do you do with the angst, the guilt, the sense of doom? And you've only really got two options. You can either repent or rebel. You can either turn to the God-prepared atonement in the shed blood of Jesus. By faith, place your hands on that sacrifice. Be atoned for and be set right with God. Or you can say, I'm not doing that. I'm doing something else. And that rebellion will always lead to false atonements because every human seeks atonement. Nobody can live in cognitive dissonance. You know what that is? It's when there's like a fight going on in your brain. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. It's like, think about it this way. It's like whatever kind of music gives you a headache, right? Rock music, country music, jazz, whatever it is for you. Almost everybody has some kind of—for me, it's new age music. It gives you a headache, okay? It just is crazy, right? Cognitive dissonance is an internal moral problem that's like that music playing in your head all the time. You have a frontal headache just constantly. It's just like you know, and for, for some of us, it's just this little—how we experience it, it's just this little kind of—you just kind of on edge a little bit. Everything—it's just not quiet inside. There always has to be something. There always has to be some music in your car. There always has to be something going because you can't be left alone with the hollow echoing of the bottom of your soul because there's something not right in there. We'll always seek false atonements. And there's, there's four of them that Budzhevsky talks about. One, the first is um, non-repentant confession, right? Have you ever said, I just need to get this off my chest? You ever heard that? Have you ever said that? Did you say it this week, right? I just need to get something off my chest. What does that mean? I'm going to confess to you, and then with authority you don't have, you're going to absolve me of my sins. Right? If I say it out loud, there's something's going to happen with it. And you see, that feels good for a little while because that is supposed to be what happens. We are supposed to confess. If you read the passage on the sin offering, it says you're supposed to bring the sin offering, and you're supposed to say in front of everybody what you did. <laughs> and then you do the sacrifice. You have to admit to it, right? Because that's meant to be cathartic. We're designed by God for confession to be good for our souls. But we can, we can change the object of our confession, and we can slightly change the confession. So we're not really admitting we're wrong. We're just talking about the thing we did wrong. And that feels almost the same in the short run. Sometimes it can just be like, I'm just going to say it, and then you're going to say that I'm fabulous, and we'll have martinis or something, you know? Um, or sometimes it's the, it's the advocacy. People will, conf- instead of confessing saying I'm wrong, they'll, they'll make a right out of it somehow, and they'll confess it and, and advocate for it. It's kind of a strident false atonement confession. But I think once you have eyes for that, you actually see it a lot. Just watch cable news shows with commentators, Right? Um, the second is self-reconciliation Because there's a sense inside that we're alienated from something we shouldn't be alienated from We're supposed to have a relationship With something bigger than ourselves Our relationships, there's a sense that our relationships with other people ought to be better And there's a sense of alienation And so one of the things we do is just we just find people Find other people and we can create a little group of people within 
and we'll, we all committed the same thing. We're, we all have our consciences about in the same place. We've suppressed them all similarly, and so we become a mutual admiration club, and we affirm each other we have that reconciled relationship. And for a little while, it feels the same as being reconciled to God. It puts a quiet to something, but not forever. Ultimately, conscience will have its revenge. Right? And then there's self-atonement. Um, I don't know if you do this yourself, or if you, there's people in your life, but there are some people that just do stuff that's self-destructive, and you're like, why did you do that? And they're just like, I don't know. I just, I don't know. People who do stuff because somehow they have in their head, their life is supposed to be miserable. Their life is not supposed to work out. Right? People have it. You've seen this in people, right? And you're like, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? Right? Um, or you might be like, well, Nick, I'm not, I'm not, I'm more psychologically healthy than that. So I'm glad you have church for, for psychologically weak and damaged people, but that doesn't really apply to me. Well, listen, that's exactly what feeling bad is for the most part. When, you, when that doesn't drive you towards confession to God, when you feel bad, you have a kind of inner sorrow, psychological torture of yourself in which you don't, it doesn't, it's not what comes naturally to drive you to confess your sins to God, but you feel bad about it. It's the same thing. It's self-atonement. There are many ways we try to make up for things. And one of those things can just be achievements. Sometimes people who are just driven, 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 it's atonement. But your, your mind, your being will come up with something to atone for yourself. It'll be matrixed into some of your values and stuff, whatever you think is good. And so it'll be different for different people. Some people will be achievement. Some people will seek the approval of others. Some people will hurt themselves. Different people will do different things, but it comes from the same place. I'm going to make up for whatever's wrong. I'm going to transcend it myself. It's self-atonement. And it, it works good for—it feels good for a while. It feels like it's working. And then the infection comes back raging. The last one is self-justification. That is, I'm—instead of seeking my justification in Christ's death, I'm going to justify myself. What I did wasn't wrong. Either it's to say what I did wasn't the wrong thing, or it's to rearrange reality so that the thing isn't wrong anymore because you've changed everything else. So, so I had a, a missionary friend from India stay in my house this weekend, and he said that he got in this car accident in, in Delhi, and— he said, I just don't know if what I did was right or wrong. I said, well, why don't you tell me? Because I'm good at judging people. And so, <laughs> it's one of my spiritual gifts. So, um, so he said he's driving in this car, right? And there was a lady that was slightly ahead of him, but just partly, like about half of her car. They were both turning right, and there were three turn, right turn lanes. And so she put on her right blinker and turned into his lane. And there was a median here. He couldn't move, right? And she hit his car— hit him into the median, and then they stopped, and people got out. And of course, so now, here, what normally you do, right? You exchange information, right? And you call the police. So in India, apparently what happens is everybody stops, people gather around, and both people make their argument for whose fault it was with the watching public. So the lady gets out of her car, and she's like, how could you do that? I can't believe you hit my car. You crashed into my back. Like, and people are like looking like, yeah, yeah, sister, right? Like, I mean, it's like this Jerry Spear show, right? And so my friend Ford's like, Whoa, whoa, whoa there, sister. No, no. That is bull. I did not hit you. You hit me. I was in this lane. She said, well, I put my blinker on. He's like, we were all turning right. Whether you turn right or turn into my lane doesn't even matter. And I I didn't have any space, right? And so she goes on. He's like, no. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen, just look at her car. My car hit hers up in her wheel well, not the back of her bumper. She's saying I hit her from behind. I didn't hit her from behind. Just look at the side of her car, right? And so he's kind of starting to win. And then he says, he says, he said this. He said, listen, I don't know what's going on here. Obviously, her car is nicer, and she's upset that her car was damaged, and I don't know because if I'm a white guy, if I look like I'm going to be a good settlement, but this is not right. Right? And so he goes, so like, what do you think? He's, he's like, because here's the thing. Every Indian I tell the story to, they tell me I did the right thing. And every American I tell the story to, they tell me I did the wrong thing. Right? Because every Indian knows you got to fight for your life in situations like that. That's just how the culture is. And every American's like, I can't believe you did that to a disempowered cultural Indian. Right? But what actually happened there? What actually happened there is he switched from argumentation to demagoguery when he brought class and race into it, which wasn't part of the argument. What her class and her race had nothing to do with whose car hit whose car. 
But he was a little bit ahead, and then he played the demagoguery to win. And so my response was, no, Ford, because all the Americans said, no, you shouldn't have argued. You shouldn't have fought for it. You should just let it— No, you can't do that in that kind of a culture. I've been there. You can't. You've got to argue. You've got to fight. But you don't have to demagogue. And he said, of all, he said, I've told that story to 50 people. You're the only person who parsed it. Everybody else said, no, you did fine. It was fine. Or, no, you shouldn't have done that. It was all wrong. You're the only person who said, this thing was wrong. No, this was fine, but you can't use this as an excuse for that. You see, what most of us do in self-justification is say, listen, I had to fight. I had to fight. And I didn't know if they were going to judge me justly. And I had to, I had to use—I was in a foreign country. I didn't know what the penalty was. I didn't—she could act like she had a hurt neck. I could not afford for that to happen. And so I'd use whatever resources were available to me. And so that was there. I knew it was hanging in the air. I, I felt like I was being treated this way because I was white. And so I said it. Right? Justification. I'm in good standing. You can't fault me for that, right? Yes, I can. Because demagoguing is demagoguing. Doesn't matter what situation you're in. You see, self—and see, reorganization, which is the opposite of self-justification, is when you actually take a step back, and instead of saying, I didn't do X that's wrong, you actually argue that X isn't wrong, which is much worse for the soul. Because what you have to do then is you have to change the definitions of reality so that you can step back and say, this thing isn't wrong because these things aren't what you thought they were, and so this isn't even bad. Okay, I'm going to offend. I'm going to offend. Can I offend you? Permission to offend? Okay, this is really going to offend some of you and really hurt some of your feelings, and I apologize for that, but please don't let the hurt keep you from listening, okay? I believe that the best cultural example of reorganization is abortion. Um, it's something that we desperately want to be okay because of the need of it for the, for pers- for, for the conveni- convenience and the, the difficulty. I mean, having a kid is huge. I mean, I, had an un- I just had an unplanned child, okay? She's eight months old. It is on one level wonderful and another level terrible, okay? And it's, we want that so badly. But you can't just say, oh, it's a baby, but it's convenient to kill it, so let's do so. You have to rearrange, You have to say, well, this is what humanity is. Humanity isn't a human life. It's personhood. Personhood is a psychological state. If I can show that the baby might not have the psychological state, then it's not protected by the right of humanists. Therefore, it's not a human being and can be—something can be done with it. And if murder is the deliberate taking of innocent human life, the only thing in those five things I can get rid of here is human life. I've got to do something with that, so I have to redefine this to be, it's the deliberate taking of innocent personhood. This being doesn't have personhood, therefore it's not protected, therefore I can do something with it. Now that may sound like a wonderful argument to get us where we want to go, but think about what we just did to ourselves to get there. It's much better to say, listen, I was drunk and I can't handle this, there's nothing I can do, I'm going to kill this thing, and we're just going to deal with it later. You'll be, your soul will be in a much better place. Because when that finally, that guilt finally becomes too much for you, there is an atoner that can deal with that. There is an atoner that can say, I killed a human life. Jesus died. The life of God was paid so that, so that not tax avoiders could go free, so that all people could go free. Okay, everyone. But when we rearrange, we'd say, this isn't this. Well, what happens when this isn't a human life? The whole structure of your conscience around respecting humans just got screwed up. Well, who does count? Who is psychologically there? And who does have personhood? Well, if intelligences are wildly different, then maybe there are people that are too stupid to really be persons. Right? That's exactly what happened in the 30s in America— which then the Germans caught hold of and used it in what they called their final solution. Remember that? Or Peter Singer at Princeton. Well, if a baby isn't a human life in the womb because it doesn't have personhood, why would an infant have personhood? Why would somebody with dementia have personhood? Why would somebody with early stages of dementia have personhood? You see, the rearrangement fundamentally changes not just the one thing we're talking about, but a whole group of things we're talking about, and it offends and breaks conscience so terribly that it slides us down the road to psychological damnation and takes us right back to a further suppression of conscience. And round the cycle goes. 
I feel wrong. I seek false atonement. It works for a little while, and then it doesn't work. And so I have to go back and suppress my conscience again. I double down on what I've already done. I come back. I have to choose. I choose to rebel again. I seek a false atonement, and it goes around and around and around and around and around and around until we cannot think straight, see straight, believe straight, or know straight anymore. But we still feel the edge that we can never get free of. Because there's only one atonement for that. Lastly, and really, really quickly, is, um, is to recognize that, do you see the irony here? It's as ironic as Lady Gaga in a Victorian dress. That's blood red, interestingly enough. Here's the great irony. The anti-repression ideology, right? I'm not going to be repressed by your expectations of me. What does that actually do? Here's what it actually does, and this is the great irony. The only thing for us to remain really human like we were designed to be that can't be repressed is our conscience. It is the most sacred center of what we were created to be. When we say, I won't be repressed in any other way, there's only one choice. The only way you cannot be repressed in any way morally is if you do repress the thing that speaks inside of you morally, which is your conscience. What, means, what that means is you can only have one of those two, and if you choose to not be morally repressed, what that means is you repress the one thing that makes you most human, which is your conscience. Anti-repression ideology about personal moral freedom creates the most repressed spiritual beings there can possibly be. That's the great irony. Conscience will always have its revenge. And that's why sin is always a rejection of reality. It's not just an offense against God, but God created reality to work in a certain way. And when we sin, we're always rebelling against reality. And reality has teeth because it will always come back and bite you in the butt. And that's why it's so important to recognize that Jesus is the atoning Savior. There's only one atonement. The false atonements, it's like straw that somebody poured Kool-Aid on. It tastes good for a minute. It feels like there's something there, but it won't nourish you. There are lots of theories people have put out on what, what Jesus' death means. And I'm not going to go through all these now. But ultimately, there's one—what controls the picture of Jesus' death? Well, Jesus told us. And John the Baptist told us. The gospel writers tell us. The biblical writers of the New Testament tell us. They say, here's what it means. The sacrificial system, God set it up ultimately to tell us what the death of Jesus means. And the death of Jesus means exactly what the burnt offering means, the fellowship offering means, the grain offering means, the sin offering means, and the guilt offering means. That's what the death of Jesus means. It means like the burnt offering and the sin offering, Jesus died to pay a penalty you couldn't pay so you could be set free from a bond you couldn't break. That there was a stain of guilt on you, or is a stain of guilt on you, that you can never wash off. And through the, the lost life of Jesus, through his blood, there is, a, there is an exchange in which you can be set free. You can be cleansed. When he takes on your stain, you receive his blessing and he takes your curse. Your guilt is on him. His freedom, moral freedom is on you. And what you could never restore— See, it's not just our guilt. It's when we do something that's sinful, we have inherent moral guilt, but we also break a seam in reality. We mess things up. We screw up other people's lives. There's always huge implications for what we do. Even little sins, we think, oh, what's the big deal? Well, it's because you don't see the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth generation of the chaos theory effect of what you did. And there's the size of restitution for what we've done is enormous, way beyond our imagination. And not only do you need to be freed from the direct moral guilt of your sin, but you need to be set free from the chaos you created. There has to be restitution. And Christ fulfills the restitution offering. The theological word is penal substitutionary atonement. He took a penalty as our substitute so that he could atone for us. That's what all these passages mean. This is maybe the clearest. In Hebrews 9, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them, meaning makes them clean, so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, is that word? Unblemished to who? At the front of the tent of meeting, to God. What can he do? Cleanse our consciences. You see the effect of atonement? 
It's the psychological effect every human needs. Cleanses our conscience from acts that lead to death. Why? For the purpose of the fellowship offering, so that we may serve the living God. Not so that he can, we can be his slaves, so that we can be brought in. We can be in his service, like the priests were in the fellowship offering, together, all eating together. The question is, like it is in all of the sacrifices, what are you going to do with your hands? That ends up being—I mean, that's what we go away with. Jesus offered the sacrifice. He provided the killing. He provided the skinning and the cutting up. He provided wicked men to put him on the cross for you. I mean, think about this. On the basis of the sacrificial system, it could have been required of us to sacrifice the Son of God ourselves. But he's provided all of that. You don't have to look him in the face and kill him, but you do have to do something with your hands by faith. Whether or not you will put your hands by faith on the atoning son or not. You can be this, you can be this person, and you can say, I'm going to do it myself. I will atone for myself. I will find a way. I will deal with the inner aches. I will be unrepressed. I will get rid of this genetic predisposition. I will, I will come out of this, and I'm not going to let you, you stinking preacher, put your expectations on me or of some ancient Semitic people on me. You can do that. You're free to do that. Or you can believe the one who provided the death of the Son of God to be the atoning sacrifice for everything that destroys your inner world and that will ultimately destroy your real eternity. Undo your life, destroy your relationships, cut unredeemable seams in reality through your sin. You could turn to him and you could, through faith, take your dirty hands and by believing in him, receive the atonement he did for you. And if you did that, the effects would be incredible. And here's what I need to say really quickly. There are a lot of you who are professing Christians who are not at peace. You're not at peace. And you argue with your spouse more, or your friends more, or you, you just do stuff you can't explain, you self-atone, you confess, get things off your chest to people who will affirm you, you just, you don't listen to your conscience, and you're go, you, it, and here's why, because you say you believe in Jesus, but you don't believe the good news, the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for everything. No pretense is needed, no pride is needed, he just is. He just is it. And, and so why do you poison yourself? And why do you chew on straw? And why do you look for salvation and look for healing and look for ointments and look for some kind of thing that will help you in a place? There is no help there. There's no help. There's at best some anesthesia, but mostly just placebo. There is only one atonement. And you might say, well, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, but you don't work Jesus. And I don't mean do works. I mean inside. Say, no, all this, this was all done on the cross. All this failing, not living up, my life shouldn't go right. I don't deserve this. These people, oh, I should defend myself. I deserve a good name. I don't deserve my name to be dragged through the mud. I should have gotten that thing, and I, I'm going to perform this, and I don't have to— All of that bled already. All of it. And you don't need it, and you don't have to carry it. And I'm not talking about some ridiculous nonsense about, you know, if you just forgive people, you won't hold them captive anymore, and the real person who's set free is you. Whatever. The reason you can't forgive them is because you are still forcing atonement out of them. There is no atonement. You cannot squeeze any blood out of that rock. There is one who bled, the Christ. And he bled for the person you hate, and he bled for you, no matter what you've done. And all that has to happen is you have to listen for that revenging voice of conscience that still speaks a little bit and say yes. And in faith, put your hands on the Christ who died for you. And then you have to believe it again and again and again and again and again. Salvation is by faith, and so is holiness. So is godliness. Godliness doesn't come merely by discipline, though discipline is involved. It comes through the discipline of applying the gospel again and again and again, down to a bottom piece. 
that you deserve, not because you're good, but because one who gets to say what happens intended for it to be yours. And if the church, if we would believe that, and people saw us really believing it, they would find it a lot more credible. They'd find it a lot more credible that we're really offering something else. But when we're spinning around in the self-damnation of our own false atonement as Christians, and then we're psychologically no different than our neighbors, they don't see the beauty of the peace that comes from the gospel. That was demonstrated for us forever in the sacrificial system of a 3,000-plus-year-old revelation to a bunch of nomadic Jews. Let's pray. Father, um, would you please help us to believe in the real thing? To trust in the atonement for Jesus, to get so much more out of it than we do in our hearts and minds. And for it to bring about the, the kind of peace that we were meant to have, the kind of truth that we were meant to experience, the freedom that it was meant to have, the sense of being cleansed that we were meant to experience, and for us to make peace of the fact that we will never earn any of this, but it is a simple gift that we receive, and that everything we do never purchases it or pays out a debt. It only responds out of joy and gratitude. We pray that you'd make us a really godly, holy people, not out of self-righteousness and pride, but out of the fact that we actually believe what you tell us about your atonement. We pray in the atoning one, Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please?